All right, good morning, everyone. Let's start. And since Guy Williams is still talking, I'm going to call him to pray. <laughs> yeah. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you called us to, uh, to come and to uh, feed upon your word. We pray that um, you would quiet our hearts from all the distractions that exist in our world so that we might come before your feet and feed upon your word. We would be pleased to uh, speak through your teacher and give us ears to hear and hearts to uh, apply the word that you're about to give. We pray this in Christ's name. Thank you. So, uh, we are continuing the subject of infant baptism or covenant baptism. And last week we laid out the case of uh, why we as Presbyterians believe in infant baptism. Um, but not everybody agrees with that. Our Baptist friends do not agree with that. And I want to give you their case or their reasoning behind their disagreement with the practice of infant baptism. For them, more is at stake than it is for us. Because we do not see baptism nor the mode as of the essence of what baptism means. That is, you have to be immersed underwater and then risen again, or brought up, hopefully, from the water, and uh, <laughs> continue living. But let me say this, just to be fair. Um, there are plenty of uh, brilliant scholars uh, in the Baptist tradition who would disagree with everything I said last week. Um, and they love Jesus. They love the Bible. They think it's God's Word. Um, they uh, are really concerned for lost souls, and they love the Lord, and um, they're very devoted. Um, but why can people look at the same Bible and read the same verses and come up with conclusions that are antithetical to one another, that are opposites, polar opposites? Why do we do that? Well, I wrote this word up on the board to help you. Sometimes I say it, and this is what it looks like written out. <laughs> it's the word hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. You can use the word hermeneutics in philosophy. You can use the word hermeneutics in English. But hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, and the science of interpretation has basic fundamental rules to keep you honest, and objective. Here's the problem when it comes to hermeneutics or the challenge. Nobody comes to the Bible tabla rasa. What does that mean? Blank slate. Everybody brings to the Bible, when they read it and interpret it, what do you bring to it? Yeah, presuppositions. Uh, you bring with it who you are at the moment. You bring your past with you. You bring your upbringing with you. You bring your church experience with you. And so it, let's say you grew up in a Baptist church and that's the only church you've ever been in. And when somebody mentions the word baptism, what do you automatically think? For of whom? Believers. Believers baptism. That's all you've seen. That's all you know. That's all you heard. And then you come to a Presbyterian church, uh, and you, you hear the preaching of the word and you kind of are drawn to it a little bit. 
because it kind of sounds like what you've heard other places. But then all of a sudden they baptize a baby and you're just like, what is going on? And there's a uh, reaction to that. And our Baptist friends react to that. I had that reaction myself. And so what I want to do this morning as quickly as possible is wrap this up. Next week I'll teach on the Lord's Supper and then Keith uh, Turner will uh, take uh, take his lead in Sunday school teaching, I believe, on social justice, which will be a great topic. But why do our Baptist friends disagree? Well, let me give you four reasons, and they're there for you on the back of the handout. Number one, they see essential discontinuity between the Abraham uh, Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. Oh, so, so the Abrahamic covenant occurs early in the book of Genesis. Uh, it really begins in Genesis 12, then in Genesis 17 it's more fleshed out. But they say that that covenant primarily has to do with whom? Jews. Uh, physical descendants of Abraham. And so when you come to the new covenant, they're saying the new covenant is something totally new. Well, that's what they believe. Secondly, and I'm going to get into these a little more in depth, they do not see any connection between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. Uh, they see that as a non-sequitur. It does not follow. They see the obvious examples in the New Testament as favoring a believer's only approach to baptism because those are the only people who get baptized, as far as they can tell, other than households. Uh, number four, they believe the doctrine of the church requires that baptism be applied to believers only. So these are their presuppositions. This is what they bring to the table to interpret text. And when they say they believe that the church should be 100% purely regenerate. And that's the church. They do not make a distinction between what the Westminster... Confession calls the visible church and the what? Alright. Who's the visible church? Yeah, everybody's sitting out there. <laughs> Who's the invisible church? Yeah, the people who believe. Uh, which we would both agree probably with our Reformed Baptist friends on the fact that that's the elect. And so, these are their fundamental presuppositions when it comes to dealing with the subject of baptism. Now, one, uh, let's begin with discontinuity between the Abrahamic covenant. I have just the word discontinuity on your outline. Uh, David Kingdon is an advocate of believers only position on baptism. And in his book, Children of Abraham, which is probably the best, most objective treatment and scriptural justification for the believers only position, he admits in this book that there is some continuity between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. Uh-oh. But he maintains that whereas the former was made with the biological descendants of Abraham, the latter was made only with his spiritual descendants. So he does not see... Over here you have the Abrahamic covenant. I'll just use ABR. And then you have the new covenant... In Jeremiah, in particular, which we're going to look at in some detail. And he doesn't see, most Baptists see a wall here. There's nothing from this that is repeated or fulfilled in this. 
There is radical discontinuity. Now, he will admit that maybe there's a little bit because he has to deal with the rest of the New Testament. And so when he does, he sees things that make him say that, but he supports his claims, especially out of Jeremiah 31, which we'll look at it more in a moment. But that's a hermeneutical issue. Is there continuity between the the, uh, Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant? We know there's not continuity very much between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. One is obsolete and the other replaces it. But is there any sense in which the Abrahamic Covenant is fulfilled in the New Covenant? Keep that in mind. He argues that the New Covenant will be totally different from all the other covenants that God made with Israel. It will be different in the sense that the new covenant will be composed of believers only. That is his case. And so he doesn't see any flow between the Abrahamic covenant, or very little, and the new covenant. Uh, Secondly, he sees David Kingdon. K-I-N-G-D-O-N. So is he right in his assertion? that there is little continuity between that. If he's right about Jeremiah 31, then he would have a legitimate argument that the Abrahamic covenant is made with Abraham's biological children while the new covenant is made with his spiritual children. But I don't think he has a case, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Because I'm not a Baptist. (laughs) All right, discontinuity between circumcision and baptism is the next uh, presupposition that those who are against covenant baptism or infant baptism, hold. He sees discontinuity not only between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, but between circumcision and baptism, and enough, he thinks, to undercut the position of all who hold infant baptism. His claim is that circumcision had more of a national emphasis in the Old Testament than baptism does in the New. And to highlight that difference, he sees between the Abrahamic Covenant and the New Covenant, he asks whether participation in the earthly and temporal aspects of the Abraham Covenant was enough to secure a right to circumcision. In other words, he's asking this question. He is asking where the right to circumcise one's children came from in the Old Testament. Uh, regarding Israel. Did it come from being a biological descendant of Abraham or did it come from those making a profession of faith like Abraham? If we say that the right to circumcise one's children came from the fact that the person was biologically descended from Abraham, then circumcision would become a physical ethnic symbol rather than a spiritual one. And if circumcision was merely physical and an ethnic symbol for Abraham's biological descendants, then the link to the New Covenant Christian breaks down. Is he right about that? We'll see. Number three, the obvious examples of baptism. One of the strongest objections to the practice of applying baptism to our children comes from the fact that the explicit examples we find in the New Testament are entirely adult baptisms, although there are at least three clear examples of household baptisms one of which Paul participated in. It is nonetheless true that the vast majority of what we see in the New Testament are adult believers, baptism of adult believers. 
And it might seem obvious that looking at these examples, then baptism ought to be applied only to believers. But is this true? Why do the explicit examples of baptism seem to consist entirely of adults? And lastly, considering the Baptist argument, the doctrine of the church. They, they object to the practice of baptizing, believe, baptizing believers and their children comes from who uh, those who see the church as consisting only of believers and baptism as corresponding to the rite of initiation into the church. These brothers and sisters are convinced that it is wrong to apply the external sign of inclusion in the new covenant people of God to infants because infants are not included in the new covenant people of God. At least that's what he thinks. Only those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ for themselves and thus are members of the new covenant people of God have a right to the external sign of inclusion. Those who make this argument appeal primarily to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 uh, for their justification in making these claims. So here again, if these brothers and sisters are right about the church consisting only, merely, of adult believers, then it is hard to see where the warrant for baptizing our children would come from. But again, we have to ask the question, are they right? And um, so let's move on and see how do we respond to the best of the Baptistic arguments. So I've laid out the case of the presupposition. It's just like when they go to the Bible and read it, just like I have glasses, they're readers, they're 3.0, which means I need to go to a real eye doctor and get some real glasses. I'm confessing to you. But if I had a prescription for my glasses, then I put them on and I can see clearly. Well, their prescription for their glasses that they use when they read the Bible are the four things I just told you in regard to infant baptism. That's why they see it. They're not being hateful. They're not being illogical. They're very consistent with what they presuppose. Here's the question. Are their presuppositions correct? Are they biblically defensible and sound? Is it true that the Abrahamic covenant is has no continuity with the new covenant. Is it true that circumcision and baptism have no connection whatsoever, even though Paul couples them in Colossians 2? Is it true that the church consists only of believers? And what was the th third one? just want to see if you're listening. Uh, the obvious examples of baptism in the New Testament. So how do we respond to these arguments? Uh, the baptism debate, by the way, is a family disagreement. Whatever view of baptism we hold to, we need to remember that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are not disagreeing over explicit biblical truths that are essential to believe in order to be saved. Now, the Bible is not always explicit in answering many of the questions we have about baptism. If it was, there would be no disagreement. We are therefore arguing over the implications of the Bible's teaching about a topic that is not of the essence of salvation. We, we do not claim when we baptize an infant or a covenant child that they are saved by that baptism. We have never claimed that. We are claiming that they are part of the visible church, part of the external uh, covenant community, and that their baptism calls them from the earliest of days 
to confess Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. So it's not salvific. That's what I mean by salvation. It's not of the essence of salvation. With that in mind, we can turn our attention now to responding to the arguments of our Baptist friends. And we will look at the discontinuity that is said to exist between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant and the discontinuity that is said to exist between circumcision and baptism and the obvious examples of baptism in the New Testament and the doctrine of the church and whether it has any bearing on the recipients of baptism. i got to do this quickly because I really want to get to Jeremiah 34. So listen fast. The claim of discontinuity between Abraham, the Abrahamic and the New Covenant arises from the fact that he does not see the essential spiritual nature of the Abrahamic Covenant. It's not merely external. And because he does not see it, he does not see the connection between the rightful recipients of circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New uh, Testament. The Abrahamic covenant was not fundamentally a national covenant. Okay? That would be which covenant? Mosaic. And they get, they conflate those two, they, they confuse those two, and that's why, uh, by the way, the Abrahamic covenant is what kind of covenant? Everlasting. That would beg the question as to whether or not it has continuity. Right? Okay. That's the first time I ever had that thought. How about that? You learn things even when you're teaching. Now, the Abrahamic covenant was not fundamentally a national covenant and acted with Abraham and his biological descendants. It was a spiritual covenant and acted with Abraham and his spiritual descendants. All those who would believe in Christ, whether in Abraham's day or in ours, are rightful descendants of Abraham and heirs of the promises of God given to him. I want my Baptist friends to read the book of Galatians, particularly chapter 3, much more closely. Because Paul says uh, that the rightful descendants of Abraham and heirs of the promises of God given to him, Jesus is the offspring of Abraham and guarantees this. Furthermore, Paul repeatedly speaks of the Abrahamic covenant in Galatians 3, not in a physical or national terms, but in total spiritual terms. He refers to Abraham as an example of one who is justified before God in the same way that you and I are today. He then explicitly states that believers are the true and real sons of Abraham, and then he adds that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, and that all those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then in verse 14 of Galatians 3, Paul describes the blessing of Abraham, not in physical or national terms, but in terms of the promised spirit through faith. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the day of Pentecost is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And is not the Holy Spirit the gift of the new covenant? When we read Jeremiah, it's very clear. And so, is there continuity? Yes, there is. Now, it's not point per point. It's not total, absolute continuity. There is a distinction But in essence, 
the essence of it is the same. When we put these verses together, um, oh, excuse me, in Galatians 3.29, we are explicitly told that all who belong to Christ are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Uh, Romans 4, verse 12 states clearly that the Abrahamic covenant was made not with Abraham's biological offspring, but with those who shared the same faith that Abraham himself had in the Christ who was to come. So we see a strong Abra, uh, argument in favor of the essential spiritual nature of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I'm not saying that the Abrahamic covenant had no national implications, but it wasn't primarily a national covenant. So what can we say about Jeremiah 31 in a minute? Discontinuity between baptism and circumcision. And his question about where the right to circumcise one's children came from in the Old Testament Israel is a good one. Did the right come from simply being a biological descendant of Abraham or did it come from making a profession of faith just as Abraham did? If the question is in regard to the actual practice that developed within Israel after Abraham, it is possible that the administration of the circumcision became focused more on nationality than on faith as the generations passed. But if the um, question is asking what God intended, we can say with great confidence that God never intended circumcision to be applied as a national symbol of ethnicity. God intended it to be an outward, listen carefully, an outward sign of an inward and spiritual condition, a circumcision of the heart that would be applied to those adults who made profession of faith and to their children. For the Jew, uh, the descendant of Abraham, this profession of faith would at least have taken the form of having his children circumcised at eight days old. And according to Genesis 17, verse 10 and verse 14, those Jews who withheld circumcision from their children were considered covenant breakers living in rebellion against God, whereas those who submitted their children to be circumcised were considered covenant keepers. And so God's intention for circumcision was never ethnic identity uh, or a physical mark, but rather spiritual. He intended it to be an outward sign administered to uncircumcised adults who made a public profession of faith for themselves and Abraham's God and also for the children of every adult who publicly embraced the covenant for himself. This is exactly the same way we as Reformed and Presbyterian apply baptism today. We stand in continuity with Abraham. Now, some of our Christian brothers and sisters who want to minimize the connection between circumcision and baptism, argue that Colossians 2, 11 and 12 does not teach infant baptism. And they are correct. It does not. There's nothing in there that explicitly says we are to baptize infants. And But to be sure, Paul does not explicitly deal with the issue of proper recipients of baptism here but he does imply a clear link between circumcision and baptism by applying both spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism to the Christian. Um, by doing so, he clearly implies the proper recipients of baptism in the New Testament are to be the same as the proper recipients for circumcision in the Old Testament because he argues 
that a bloodless sign, circumcision was a sign of letting blood, baptism is a bloodless sign, applied not only to males, but also who? Females. Now, the obvious examples of baptism, I, you know, I, I don't think there's much to argue with here other than our Baptist friends, uh, are very much what I call book, chapter, verse people. If it doesn't command you to do it, you don't do it. But there is no command not to do it. <laughs> so that argument falls flat, just in pure logical terms. But uh, the household baptisms bring to the fore, I bet, uh, if, if they would be honest, gut level, they would say, I wish that wasn't in there. Because <laughs> we'd have an airtight case. But we don't know, of course, about the household baptisms. Um, but I told you last week, the average household of a person who had a household uh, would sometimes number up to 90 people. And to say that there was no child who did not yet believe the gospel or no infant or no two or three-year-old is making a statement you can't prove. I can't prove that it included but you can't prove that it didn't include. And so, again, you get back to the pair of glasses you look through to determine the meaning of the text. Uh, my argument is our Baptist friends need a new prescription. And that's why this is so difficult. That's why standing in the back door on Sunday morning after worship, people flying by, what's this infant baptism stuff? You know, I can't tell you this. In a sound bite of 30 seconds. Sometimes I've just said, well, you ought to do it because God commanded Abraham to. And whatever God commands is right. And if he commanded Abraham to do it, it's the right thing to do. And they'll go, but what's Abraham got to do with me? And I want to say, everything. <laughs> everything with you. Now, finally, the doctrine of the church. How, what time is it? Okay. Um... God never intended, uh, Paul speaks of two communities in Romans chapter 9. Um, we believe that there's an external covenant community and a, a visible community that is made up of all who embrace the covenant outwardly with their lips and lives, but not necessarily inwardly with their hearts. Paul speaks of two communities in Romans 9, where he tells us that not all who are descended from Israel belongs to Israel. What does he mean there? That there are people who are externally related to the covenant and to God and have received circumcision, but what? Never had their hearts circumcised, right? Okay. I don't know that I need to talk a whole lot more about that. That's pretty evident and clear. And even Baptists would admit, because I know a few of them, that um, that uh, there are unregenerate people in their church. Because <laughs> they're always preaching, trying to get the unregenerate saved. And why preach the, you know, why offer an invitation every week if you don't think anybody there is unregenerate? <laughs> I mean, I don't get that. I know why they do it. Yeah. So don't believe what? I haven't looked at that. Uh, they might acknowledge it, but not in the same way we do. Because we're covenant theologians. 
And most Baptists are not covenant theologians. They do not want you to call them dispensationalists, but they are. I hate that term. Don't call, don't paint me with that brush is what they do. All right. Now let's get, let's get into Jeremiah 31. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I, I can get into that, but what often the Bible does, that's a Church of Christ argument verse. My grandmother, my, yeah, my grandmother was, and she told me I was close to the kingdom, but not in it. And she used to mail me cards every birthday with tracts and clothes telling me that unless I had been baptized in a church of Christ, the moment I made a profession of faith, I was lost forever. So I don't want to get to that. But the latter part of 38, that's another argument for another time. Yeah. They don't. Not consistently. Not consistently. Uh, it's a different framework. We believe that the covenant and the kingdom are two themes about or through which the Bible is organized. Um, and it begins in Genesis 3.15, for that matter, and the fall of the covenant of works where Abraham, I mean, God entered into a covenant of works with Adam. And we see the whole Bible is hung together by virtue of covenants. Our Baptist friends don't see that. Not usually. You know why? Think about it. Why would they not? Because they're going to end up being Presbyterians if they keep on going down that road. And they know that. I knew it. When I was a Baptist preacher, I could not go down that road because I kept hearing it my, mainly what convinced me was my Old Testament courses at Reformed Seminary. Reformed Theological Seminary, where I went, was not a uh, Presbyterian school. It was independent. So we had people from every tribe, kindred and nation there, but they taught consistently with what the Westminster Confession of Faith gives us. And so our friends, our Reformed Baptist friends, can never, they might talk about covenant theology. They've even written on covenant theology, but they never quite get it. It's like, they're close, but no cigar. And close only counts on what? Horseshoes and grenades, right. Yeah. <laughs> now, we want to get to Jeremiah 31, and y'all won't let me. So here we are. This is what they think makes the case for them. And if I understood Jeremiah 31 the way they did, I would have never baptized one of my children as an infant or a covenant child. We had a civil war at my house, by the way, because my oldest Mary and my middle child Megan were baptized by immersion as believers. And then Molly was baptized at two years old as a covenant child. And her two sisters said, she can't be baptized. And we said, why? And they said, because she hadn't asked Jesus into her heart or nothing. <laughs> so we had a baptismal debate in our home. And they were upset about it. They're okay about it now, but they were upset about it. Baptists are not truly covenantal. That's what I will say. I wasn't when I was a Baptist, and I knew all about this stuff. All right. So... Is there substantial discontinuity between the New Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant, 
Or are these two covenants essentially the same? Jeremiah 31, verses 33-34, you can turn there if you like, we see the essential continuity between the Abrahamic and the New Covenant. For instance, when Jeremiah describes the New Covenant and how it will be different from all the covenants that preceded it, in laying out these differences, he cites the phrase, I will be their God and they shall be my people as being one of the characteristics of the New Covenant. This phrase, however, was explicitly included in the promises God made to Abraham. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. Thus, according to Jeremiah 31, the very same promise that was part of the Abrahamic covenant will remain part of the new covenant, which quite obviously demonstrates what? Continuity. There's continuity between them. But we can also see continuity in the fact that the phrase, I will be their God and they shall be my people, occurs very often in the Old Testament to refer to the external covenant community. In Exodus 6-7, for example, God makes a promise to the physical nation of Israel, I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. What do we know about all the people that came out of Egypt with Israel? What do we know? They were a what? Mixed multitude. They were not all believers. And yet God says to this mixed multitude, I will be your God and you shall be my people. That is applying it externally. Now why would we think the same promise would not in the new covenant apply to genuine believers? Plain and simple, we should not. The phrase, I will be your God, you shall be my people, is reserved not only for believers in the Old Testament, it is given to the external covenant community as a whole, which beginning at least with Abraham also included infant children. This in and of itself ought to be sufficient to overturn the thesis. Jeremiah 31 teaches substantial discontinuity between the Abraham and the New Covenant. But essential continuity can also be seen in Jeremiah 31, the clear references to the divine initiative in the New Covenant. Repeatedly, we are told that the covenant will be defined by a dependence on the same kind of divine sovereignty that defined the older covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, we are told seven times that God will establish the covenant and that he himself will bring all the promises to pass. And significantly in the new covenant, we are told seven times that God will establish sovereignly the covenant and bring the promises to pass. And so the new covenant does not look like a substantially different covenant, but one that is very much in keeping with the covenants that had come before. If I don't get time to say this, let me say this now. What ties all the covenants together? Or rather, who ties all the covenants? Jesus. Jesus is the glue. <laughs> I hate to say that, I don't want to be irreverent. But he's the adhesive <laughs> and the fulfillment of every covenant. It all points to him. And so there is continuity for that reason. Now, what about the apparent differences in Jeremiah 31? For example, uh, the new covenant will be different from all the previous covenants. Uh, those phrases indicate, number one, that all members of the new covenant will have the law written on their hearts. They will all be God's people. They will all know the Lord and be forgiven of their sins. So we have to answer this question. 
by reminding ourselves that the true members, uh, that is, the members of the internal invisible community of both the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are those who genuinely believe as Abraham did and are thus in Christ, who is the offspring of Abraham. We should not be surprised, therefore, that in both covenants we find language that would apply only to genuine believers. But we have already pointed out the example of the phrase, I will be your God, you shall be my people, applies to the external covenant community. So we have both there. Uh, but in understanding Jeremiah 31, it's important to keep in mind the immediate context, this is another hermeneutical issue, what is Jeremiah contrasting the new covenant to come what covenant is he contrasting that with? It is not the Abrahamic covenant, but which covenant? The Mosaic covenant, which was a temporary nationalistic covenant, I believe a republication of the covenant of works with uh, the nation Israel. It was more national, ethnic. Everything our Baptist friends want to say about uh Abraham, they're really talking about the old uh, old covenant contrasted with the new, not the Abrahamic covenant. The old covenant is the Mosaic economy, the Mosaic covenant, and it is what the writer in Jeremiah is contrasting it with. So all the arguments of my Baptist friends who want to make this issue miss the point there because they don't pay attention to context. It's a hermeneutical issue. Do you believe it yet? <laughs> All right, but essential con continuity is there. Uh, the context is not comparing and contrasting the Abrahamic covenant with the new covenant, but rather uh, the Mosaic covenant. And the point Jeremiah is making, that the new covenant will be different from, not like, the Mosaic covenant in three main ways. The law will be written on the hearts of the people, all will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. God will remember their sins no more. And the context is significant for understanding how the new covenant is different in each of these ways. And so it helps us see that the new covenant is only different in its form, but not in its substance. And so we see first in the promise of, that God will write the law upon the hearts of the people. The law was written on tablets of stone in the Mosaic covenant, will now be written on the hearts of people. It is not that the law will no longer apply, but it will be replaced by a new law. The law that was part, or that it will be replaced by a new law, the law that was part of the Mosaic Covenant will still be a part of the New Covenant. The only difference is the form that law will take. Second, we see a difference in form in the promise that all the New Covenant will know the Lord. Here again, context shows us this verse is not suggesting that believers alone will be a part of the New Covenant. It shows us that the new covenant will be different from the Mosaic covenant, both in its clarity and its universality. In regard to its clarity, this passage teaches that the new covenant will be one in which God will speak to his people more clearly and not under a veil as he did under the Mosaic covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 16, where Paul contrasts the new covenant with the Mosaic covenant. The gospel, which was integral to the Mosaic Covenant, was obscured by shadows and veiled in darkness. In the New Covenant, God turns the lights on, 
And he's made the gospel message that he held out to us in the Mosaic Covenant clearer and fuller. He's not given a different gospel, but he's given or a better gospel uh, than he gave under the Mosaic Covenant, but he has given us the same gospel, but he's given it to us more clearly and more fully. The veil has been removed. The substance of the covenant has not changed, but the form has. In regard to universality, uh, members of the New Covenant, this is not, again, an indication that every member of the New Covenant will be a genuine believer. It's, again, a statement that a change in form is coming. Under the Mosaic Covenant, a privileged few, prophets and priests, in the New Covenant, all from the least to the greatest, will have the same access and opportunity to know God and his will. That is why Jeremiah can say that teachers will no longer be necessary in the New Covenant. All will have access to what only a privileged few had access to before. Uh, this will help us understand uh, the teacher's will, God's will for themselves, but they are no longer responsible for revealing God's will to people. Third, the new covenant's formal difference in the final promise given is that God will remember sins no more. Here again, context helps us of what is actually being said. And you know from my preaching through the book of Hebrews, if you listen at all, that the Mosaic covenant is what? Obsolete. It's done. It's over. Stick a fork in it. Uh, that was because in the Mosaic Covenant, God was still remembering sins. Now, he has forgotten them forever. So rather than teaching that the New Covenant is made up of entirely believers, Jeremiah 31 actually teaches the New Covenant is in substantial continuity with all the covenants to precede it. In conclusion, what do I have? Minute. We can therefore conclude in contradistinction to our Baptist brothers and sisters, and we still call them brothers and sisters, and we still love them, and uh, I don't know if they love us, but we love them. That the difference between the new covenant, you know, here's something I often hear just in a colloquial expression. You're baptizing all these babies, and they're walking around thinking they're saved. And I asked a Baptist friend of mine, have you ever baptized anybody that didn't live out the Christian life? And they would go, Yeah. I said, well, don't make that charge to us, please. Because you do it. <laughs> if they make a profession, you dunk them. So that's... Um, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Right. The, 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 to me, the single clincher of it all is in Acts chapter 15 when they had the council in Jerusalem, which was about what? Eating meats offered to, you know, in circumcision. If ever there was a time to say, this is an argument from silence, I get it, but it's a good one. If ever there was a time to say, and now children have no place in the external covenant community, it would have been then. Because Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and said the promise is for who? You and who? Covenant land. You even turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Read the last few verses. What's there? God himself will be your God and you will be what? His people. It's all through the scriptures. And so that's what it means to have a covenantal hermeneutic. Is you allow 
what the Bible has in its integrity and system itself gives us the shape of how God saves sinners. Okay? Uh-huh. Yeah, they do. Most of them. And, and often there are many, many Baptist churches, not all, but many most, if you have not been baptized by immersion, they will not receive you as a member. They want to anabaptize you. And what is anabaptism? Re-baptism. Which I had to write a paper on in seminary, and I'll leave with this. I was a Baptist when I went to seminary. I was pastor in a Baptist church. And I had to write a paper on uh, uh, this uh, movement around the Reformation. Some of the radical Reformation uh, were rebaptizing people who had been baptized as infants. And so a group of reformers got together and took the leader of that group. His name escapes me at the moment. Tied rocks around him, <laughs> rope around his neck, took him out in the boat, and threw him in the lake. Why? Well, you want to be rebaptized? Here we go. Now, that was awful, but that kind of stuff happened because it was inflamed with emotions. We don't want to be that way, do we? But anyway, that's the best guy the Baptists have got, and you, you make your decision. But I am not a person who's going to come beat you up if you don't do it. But I strongly encourage you to give serious thought. Serious though. Okay, thank you. You're welcome.